Gospels, I'd like for you to turn to Matthew chapter 24. I'm going to go ahead and read the three passages that we're looking at here this morning. I want you to see some of the similarities and some of the differences between the three. So Matthew chapter 24, we'll start in verse 9 and read to verse 14. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. Turn with me to Luke Chapter 21, and then we'll read Mark last. Luke chapter 21, verses 12 through 19. Luke 21, verses 12 through 19. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves. For I will give you utterance and wisdom, which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name. Yet not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives." You turn over to Mark chapter 13, read verses 9 through 13. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures the end, he will be saved. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray for... Just added clarity this morning. We thank you that every jot and tittle of your word is true, is inspired by you, is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for teaching, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped, ready for every good work. Lord, we ask for your help as we interpret this passage together as we consider it in its truth together. May you be honored and glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I thought I'd start with a question this morning. How many of you plan out your day? How many of you plan out your day? This might take the form of a mental list. Maybe some of you guys are mental listers. Uh, Some of you might... Still live in the dark ages and write out your lists. 
Maybe you log them in a day timer. Any, any calendaring people have actually a day timer? Oh, I see somebody back there. We, we could take a median age thing on this and see what we find out. Maybe some of you do this on technological devices of some sort or fashion. I'm sure that we all do at least some minimal planning, while others are, of us are intense in the matter of planning. We want to plan out every little detail. It's kind of interesting. Usually within every marriage, there's somebody who's really a planner and somebody who's not so much. And that usually um, is a wonderful opportunity for growing and stretching and sharpening of one another, isn't it? The more things that vie for our attention, the more things that come into our life, the more necessary it is for us to write them down, especially as we get a little bit older, too. Huh? Sometimes that becomes all the more important. Well, I'd like you to ask you this question this morning. When's the last time that you planned for persecution? When's the last time you sat down and planned for persecution? You know, 8 a.m., arrive at work. 8.30, take a firm ethical stand, inciting my boss to get upset with me. 9 a.m., talk about Jesus with my coworker one cubicle over. 9.30, become the butt of jokes for my stand for Christ around the water cooler. 10 a.m., get informed that I'm not going to receive a promotion because I'm unwilling to do something unethical. For economic gain. When's the last time you had a plan like that as it approached a day? Now, certainly, I don't know if we would all plan out the worst case scenario in all situations. However, do you live in light of that kind of reality? Do you happen to live in a country in which Christianity is frowned upon and sharing the Gospels met with extreme consequences? Your hypothetical plan might look instead something like this. 8 a.m., Share the gospel with my neighbor whom I've cultivate, cultivated a relationship with. 8.30, get discovered by authorities for my evangelistic efforts. 9 o'clock, get arrested. 9.30, be beaten and flogged. 10 a.m., hold firm to my faith and proclaim Jesus' excellencies, even with those who are enemies of the cross. And 10.30, die for my faith. Sealing my testimony with my blood. You see, we don't typically plan for persecution. In fact, we often think that persecution is an unwelcome guest, something that is never planned for and just gets in the way, an infringement on an otherwise good day, a hiccup in the grand plan, and something that we try to get through as quickly as possible with as little pain as possible. Now, while I'm not advocating that we pray for persecution, certainly those who are involved in actually doing the persecuting are sinning, right? So we're not encouraging people to engage in sin. We're not praying and asking that we be persecuted. But we definitely do need to be reminded that persecution is not something which we should work against or work to avoid at all costs. Some people live a life to try to avoid any amount of persecution. Is that what God would have for us as his children? You see, persecution is not an oversight of our Heavenly Father. He's not like, oops, what happened? All of a sudden, some of my, some of my beloved children are being hurt by someone. In fact, what we find in Scripture is that God has planned for His children to be persecuted. God has planned for His children to be persecuted. You know, persecution is part of that plan that God is working together 
He's working all things together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. You know, part of the all things that are being worked together is persecution. That's part of what God is working together. In fact, persecution is one of the most important instruments that God is using to spread the news of the gospel to a lost and dying world. It is an instrument in the hands of our God. I think if we can really get a hold of that, not just make that statement and go, oh, that's kind of an interesting statement, but really get a hold of it, that God is using persecution for the advancement of the gospel. If we can really get a hold of that, it would transform our perspective. Last week we began looking at Jesus' Olivet Discourse. We noted that the entire discussion was prompted by Jesus' unexpected response to a comment that was made about the temple by some of his followers. The temple, as we noted last time, was truly a sight to see. It was a building that was unparalleled in beauty and grandeur. It was complete with stones that weighed over 100 tons. There was something that was the picture of permanence and dependability and resilience. It was a temple. However, Jesus explains that in coming days, it's going to be utterly destroyed. I mean, to such a place where not one stone will be left upon another. And when you think about the size of those stones, we looked at some pictures last time, you see just how big of a prophecy that was. This stuff's going to be completely, Jesus says, obliterated. And modern archaeology confirms that fact. The temple was obliterated by the Roman army in 70 A.D., And all that remains from that day are some foundation stones which would have been far below ground level of the temple. Why did this happen? Well, we certainly understand that this was a judgment from God upon a corrupt religious establishment. Most notably, their corruption was seen in the rejection of Jesus, the very one to whom the law and the prophets and the ceremonies and the sacrifices and the temple itself were pointing They rejected the one whom God had sent to them, his own son. Jesus had already cleansed the temple two times. They had already had two up-close and personal confrontations with the wrath of a holy God as related to the temple. And how did they respond to both of those cleansings? With further rejection and rebellion. So it came time for the fulfillment of what Solomon had prophesied long before, when he had dedicated the temple, he said, if your people should turn their face away from you, then bring judgment upon even this place. And this is exactly what God does. God would bring a swift and terrible judgment upon these hypocrites, these whitewashed tombs, these murderers. Jesus' remarks here are astonishing to the disciples. And Jesus is astonished by their astonishment. He says, don't you see these things? I mean, Jesus is having a question here of perspective with his, his disciples. He's saying, how, can, how is it possible that you can comment on the external look of this building and not see what's at the heart or core of what this, is inside of this building at this very moment? Their infatuation with outward appearance had led them to fail to consider the inward heart and motivations and agenda of the religious establishment that was within that very temple. And since this temple had failed to live up to the purpose which it had been built, Jesus said it must be torn down brick by brick and demolished. Once Jesus and his disciples then traveled out of the city, they made their way across a valley up a hill, a hill that we remember as the Mount of Olives. And he sat down. From that vantage point, he could look over the entire temple. 
And at this moment, the disciples decide that it's a good time to inquire further into what Jesus is talking about. What is this sign that he's saying is going to happen? When is this going to happen? That's a crucial question in their mind. When, Lord? When are these things going to happen? What will be the sign that this is all being fulfilled? Matthew indicates that their questioning even included, what sign will accompany your coming and the end of the age? We talked about this last time. There's potential that they saw kind of like all of this happening together. If the temple is being destroyed, then that must also be a sign of the very end, the consummation of history. So they're asking, when will these things take place? When will be the sign of, the, of your coming, the end of the age? When will all this be fulfilled? Now, it's Jesus' response to those questions that we have recorded in Mark 13, Matthew 24, and Luke 21. Famously remembered as the Olivet Discourse, because it happened on the Mount of Olives, right? These three passages share so much in common that it's undoubtedly the same occasion that the Gospels were recording. Remember, there are other occasions where Jesus might say, give the same teaching on a different occasion. And that's okay. But I think here in this case, the surrounding context shows us that all three Gospels were recording the same event. Which, there's a lot of similarity between the accounts, but there are some differences as well, which has made it somewhat of a difficult task to harmonize all three accounts of this event. Now, understand what I just said. I'm not saying impossible to harmonize. I'm saying difficult to harmonize. Scripture's consistency is certainly not dependent on my puny ability to put together all the pieces. I'm going to say that out up front because I think sometimes detractors from the gospel, people who aren't believers, Try to pick apart at the Bible at places like this. But just remember, just because you can't completely reconstruct how all of these things fit together doesn't mean that there's an inconsistency among those things. It just means you lack the ability to put them all together. And I must admit humbly from the outset that there are elements of this that I still scratch my head over. I wonder about. I wonder if I'm interpreting correctly. So we can come to the text humbly and recognize that its consistency is not dependent on my ability to put it all together. How many of you can solve a Rubik's Cube in here without any helps? Without any helps can solve a Rubik's Cube without breaking it apart into pieces. <laughs> can solve a Rubik's Cube. Okay, so that means that they must not be solvable, right? I mean, nobody rose your hand. So that means they're unsolvable, right? A Rubik's Cube's unsolvable? Like, no, we've seen people solve them. We've seen them solve them quick. You know, some of the world records, you know, I can... Like less than 10 seconds category, people can solve Rubik's Cubes. So just because I can't solve it like that doesn't mean it can't be solved, right? So similarly, when we come to difficult places like this, remember that your ability to put something together doesn't, isn't an infringement, or a lack of ability to do that, isn't an infringement on the truthfulness or the consistency of God's word. You might lack knowledge. I lack knowledge and perspective and ability, perhaps, at a certain, certain times to assemble the picture completely. But that doesn't mean that we can't begin the work of assembly. And it doesn't mean that we can't engage in dialogue and discussion about the assembly and enjoy the process together and allow it to be something that's encouraging and edifying rather than disgruntling and, and dividing. That's what my hope is as we continue through this study together. Even when we lack understanding of how this is all going to work out, our faith and trust in God and his word must remain unshaken. Rather than becoming anxious, something that the Bible itself calls us not to be, let's enjoy the rich dialogue and dig deeply into God's word together. We're protected and prepared by these things. 
And we're left in the hopeful state of anticipation as we consider how this is going to all unfold. But let's remain, as we talked about last week, humble and loving, charitable toward one another. I will say that what remains is one of the most difficult things for me to come to a firm conclusion about in this text is what Jesus is answering in his reply. What is Jesus answering? What question is Jesus answering? Part of the dilemma comes up because Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a slightly different question that's being posed. I just mentioned to you that Matthew includes this idea, and what will be the sign of the end and your coming? Mark and Luke don't have that added question, which causes further question. What is Jesus answering? What question is he answering? Is he answering a question about something in the near future? Is he thinking about something further down the line? Is he answering a question regarding when and how the temple would be destroyed and preparing his disciples for events in the near future? Or is he providing instruction for his disciples that would be living at the end of history when everything gets wrapped up in a great climactic tribulation followed by Jesus' second coming? Or just to make it even a little bit more complicated, is he providing a little bit of both here? Is he answering both questions at the same time? Is he answering both questions but at separate times? Or is he doing a combination of both of those? Or sometimes he's answering both questions and sometimes he's asking one or the other. All of those options are on the table as we look at it together. My hope and prayer is that as I walk through this text and provide some arguments as to how I've come to the conclusions I have, give you a little bit more behind-the-scenes interpretive, what is Jess doing in his office? (laughs) What is he working on? How does he go about this? I want to give you some of that look, because what I hope to do is to encourage you to study the Scriptures, to be like the Bereans, right? those noble Bereans who search and examine the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. If a sermon causes you to leave with a bunch more questions and with a bunch of excitement about digging into the Word of God, then that was a successful time together. And I hope that you will take up that challenge. So what is Jesus answering? I've got to at least put out what I think. What, what is he answering here? Is he answering how and when the temple will be brought to an end? Or how all of history will come to an end? The best that I can do is explain my perspective as it exists right now. Well, I find it hard to believe that Jesus has nothing to say about the specific matter that birthed this whole discussion, i.e., the temple, and its coming destruction. Remember, that's a furnished original question. He says, this whole thing's going to be obliterated. Not one stone left upon another. So the disciples ask, when will these things be? When will this be fulfilled? I have a hard time believing that Jesus is saying nothing at all about the temple. he just gotten done rebuking the Jewish authorities in previous contexts, right? Calling them all kinds of names, right? You whitewashed tombs, you hypocrites, all of the rest. He has all kinds of statements against the Jewish leadership. And then he says that this temple is going to be torn down so completely that not one, left, one stone is going to be left upon another. The disciples ask, when will these things be? Certainly, Jesus can't completely ignore that immediate context. I have a hard time believing that he has nothing to say about the immediate context that he just got done talking about. We have to ask the question, How would Jesus' hearers have heard him? What would the disciples have interpreted from Jesus' words? Did Peter, James, John, and Andrew, and the rest of Jesus' disciples, think that these instructions were meant for disciples thousands of years later? 
especially for those living in the days of the temple when it was destroyed, I'm sure when AD 70 happens and the temple is destroyed, these words would have been a tremendous comfort to Jesus' followers. Why? Because Jesus predicted that these sorts of things would happen. They wouldn't think that this is some hiccup in God's plan. God, Jesus is preparing them for coming persecution and difficulty. They saw tremendous amounts of struggle and persecutions, such that Jesus' words regarding the severity of judgment would help them, would make, help them make sense of what was going on. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs, and you should be sufficiently convinced that the times around the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus in those early days of the church were days full of persecution and difficulty. I also find further facts of history interesting in this case as we see actual wars and conflicts, false Christs, famines, and earthquakes all arising between 30 and 70 A.D. So I, do I believe that these words are only about the end of time? No, I can't say that. I think they have an application to the events around 70 A.D. and what Jesus' disciples are going to encounter. But do I believe that Jesus' words were meant only for that time period, only for the time leading up to A.D. 70? I can't say that either. Both Mark and Matthew speak of the gospel being preached to all nations. Matthew says, once the gospel of the kingdom is preached to the whole world, the end will then come. Since we know that our present day is still engaged in that great task, it's hard to say that that statement could satisfactorily have been fulfilled come A.D. 70 without some extreme reduction in what is meant by inhabited world. By the way, that's what someone would say. They would say inhabited world there just means Rome. So as soon as the gospel goes to Rome, that's symbolic of getting to the whole world. That's how someone who believes that all that's fulfilled AD 70 would interpret that. I have a hard time taking that word to mean that in this case. Also, the abomination of desolation, which was prophesied by Daniel, you can look that one up, is brought up here by Jesus in the text that we'll look at next week. But it doesn't have an excellent fulfillment in AD 70. Titus, who's the main general of the Roman army, who comes and destroys the temple and breaks into Jerusalem and all the rest, there is nothing in his actions that could be seen as the abomination of desolation without generalizing that word to such an extent that the sign no longer means anything. Like they say, the abomination just means taking over the place. Well, that's, there's something too specific about abomination of desolation for me to believe that this is a general reference to Rome coming in and conquering the temple. What's interesting is that there was something that happened about 200 years prior to when Jesus is speaking here that did look like the fulfillment of what Daniel was talking about. In 168 B.C., a Syrian ruler by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, we read about this guy in Josephus, entered into Jerusalem and he desecrated the temple. He stopped the sacrifices and then he erected a statue of Zeus in the holy place. Now all of a sudden we go, oh man, that kind of looks like the sort of thing that abomination of desolation coming into the holy place. And here's a statue of a false god being erected. But that happened 200 years prior to what Jesus is saying. What's interesting, when Jesus says this, there might have been some that were listening to Jesus that thought maybe Daniel's prophecy had already been fulfilled back in 168 B.C. When Antiochus put this thing inside of the holy place. But Jesus says, speaks of it as something that's coming in the future. And since AD 70, I believe, doesn't have a really good reference for that, I believe this is a reference to something much further down the line. Now, the nature of what that is is a whole other discussion, which we might be able to engage in a little bit of next week together.
Jesus indicates that there's something yet to come. Also, can I also mention that he speaks in this in this uh, discourse of a great tribulation, such as it has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. So Jesus speaks about a coming great tribulation. By the way, Revelation 7:14 also refers to a great tribulation. And here Jesus says, such that the world has never seen something like this. Nothing as great as this has ever happened or ever will happen. So then you think about, okay, events around 87. You remember, I already told you, I mean, you had earthquakes, you had wars, you had false messiahs rising up, you had all this stuff, you had the destruction of the temple, you know, people are fleeing from the city of Jerusalem when Titus and the, the Roman army comes in, they're fleeing to the mountains, and if you were pregnant during those ages, that time you would have been, it would have been a desperate time, I mean, it would have been awful, be displaced from your home, all the rest, horrible stuff going on. But it's hard from our perspective looking back to imagine even the atrocities that are happening there to think that in any way, shape, or form they could come close to like the Nazi Holocaust. A huge amount of destruction that comes from that, especially even against the Jewish people. It's hard to believe that that gets dwarfed by what happened in AD 70, which makes me think that this is something still yet to come. Jesus is speaking about a great tribulation that still has not come. And in connection with interpretation of Romans or Revelation 7, I believe that is something that's still yet to come at the end of history. Following this great tribulation, Matthew 24, 29 through 31, then explains that there will be some strange astronomical phenomena. Sun, moon, and stars will be darkened. And we're told that the Son of Man will come on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Again, this description sounds like the end of history, the culmination of history. A massive time of tribulation will be then followed by the glorious return of Jesus. And this time when Jesus comes back, it will be in glory and in power. By the way, this is the same Jesus who came the first time to earth in humility an abject lowliness, such that he was even born in an animal's feeding trough. And not only is he our glorious Lord, but he is, we know from his first coming, our merciful and faithful high priest. What a savior we've been given in Jesus. So is Jesus only speaking to the disciples of his own day? No, I believe that the language points to larger events that are still yet to come. Now, as it also relates to Bible interpretation, I think our starting point in interpreting the Bible has to be that we understand that the Bible had application to God's people in a particular time, but it also has application to us today. If Jesus said something to his disciples, we can rightly assume that those words are also meant for us. For example, the Great Commission. <laughs> Go and make disciples, right, of the nations, baptizing them, teaching them. Those words from Jesus delivered to his disciples, were those meant only for his disciples? Or were they meant for us as well? Those who would come to Christ through even the disciples' witness many, many years later. I believe that those words encouraged both Jesus' disciples in the 30s A.D. and Jesus' disciples in the 2000s A.D. In most cases, that would be our assumption. We assume that Jesus' teaching also has instructive merits for us today. So I would start with assuming present application of Jesus' words unless the text makes plain that it was not intended for me. Example, 
reading that Noah was called to make an ark, to build an ark, does not mean, after having had a little devotional time with the Lord, that I should go out to my backyard and begin building an ark. That is, unless I'm like answers in Genesis and I'm doing it for some museum project or something like that. But, but otherwise, we're not, we don't take those kinds of commands to be literal commands still to us in the same fashion today. So all of this lands me in either a third, fourth, or fifth position that I mentioned earlier. Jesus is answering, I believe, both sets of these questions. I think he's talking about the temple, and I think he's also talking about the end. But is he doing it one and then the other? Is he doing them simultaneous? Or is he doing some combination of simultaneous and one and then the other? Well, let me just answer that quickly. I believe that the ending verses that lead up to this great tribulation and this return of Jesus and all of that seem to only have a real, true, significant expression in end times, in the last days kind of idea. So I believe there's part, part of what Jesus is talking here that really is only directed at things that are yet to come. For example, I have a hard time believing that Jesus coming on the clouds is somehow a reference to his ascension into heaven. That would be Jesus going in the clouds, not coming in the clouds. So someone who goes, well, that, that's how that was fulfilled. I don't buy it. It's him coming in the clouds in power and glory. It's not him going. I also have a hard time if they say, well, what about Stephen? Stephen saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God the Father. Again, that's Jesus standing. That's not Jesus coming. I believe that there's a, there's a part of this discourse that is most definitely, and I think its only application is to some end time situation. However, I believe that the earlier elements of this have a good connection to the present day of Jesus' disciples there between 30 and 70 A.D., seeing some amount of fulfillment in the events around the, the destruction of the temple, but that these things also have a telescopic view, or as one of the commentators says, a bifocal view, where you can see a reality that's going on in the judgment and destruction of the temple that will also then see a greater fulfillment much later. Douglas Moo says it this way, It's hard to see how Jesus could have ignored in his answer the destruction of the then existing temple about which the disciples asked him. So I said earlier, hard for him to say, just ignore that altogether. Probably then Jesus telescopes A.D. 70 and the end of the age in a manner reminiscent of the prophets who frequently looked at the end of the age through more immediate historical events. So in other words, there's something right now going on in history that when looked at and properly interpreted and considered can give us a picture of future coming events. So they look at a smaller event in the scope of history and telescope it forward to a greater fulfillment to come down the line. Some people call this pre-fulfillment and fulfillment or pre-fulfillment, fulfillment, or a near-fulfillment and a far-fulfillment. Now, just to understand that this isn't like just something we just pull out of a hat, there's examples of this in Scripture, and I want to just give you a couple. I mentioned one last week, and I felt like after having said it offhandedly, it's one of those things, you know, you say something offhandedly while you're preaching, and then you're like, I want to look into that a little bit further and provide a little bit more buttressing to that argument so you can see how it really fits and works. Prophecy that was given by Isaiah that's quoted in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. Important Christmas passage that we are familiar with. We read the following, starting in verse 22. Now all of this took place... To fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And then there's a quotation here of Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, 
which translated means God with us. Now, when you read that in its original context, in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, you read the following. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Then you go just a couple chapters later to Isaiah chapter 9. You get some of the uh, famous, like, um, oh, what's that famous opera, Christmas opera thing? Handel's Messiah. Thank you. Excellent. Wonderful. See, you guys are listening. You're paying attention. Excellent. So Isaiah chapter 9, we read this. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. There's some big stuff there. You know, it doesn't apply well with just some puny human king. What's being described here is someone whose name can be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or peace. His kingdom will go on forever and ever, and it will uphold justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. That description is huge. And so suddenly you realize that Isaiah is peering into things that are further in the future than just right smack dab there at his own day. It becomes clear that no mere human king can fit that description. So the prophecy is speaking forward. It's looking forward to someone who will fit it entirely. And we know that the only one who could fit it entirely and perfectly was Jesus. And Matthew rightly connects this, makes this connection. Having said that, we all read that on Matthew. We go, yeah, yeah, he prophesied in Isaiah, right? Isaiah prophesied that a virgin would conceive and give birth and will be called Emmanuel, God with us. I mean, that's Jesus, right? That's, it's reference to Mary and the virgin conception, the virgin birth. But what about in Isaiah's day? What was the immediate context there? The statement is made by Isaiah to the king there in King Ahaz. King Ahaz was being threatened by Rezin and Aram and Pekah in Israel by means of the military might of Assyria. Ahaz was told to trust the Lord for deliverance, and he's told here to seek a sign from the Lord. Isaiah says, tell me what sign you want from the Lord to prove to you that the Lord is going to protect you through this. And Ahaz declines. He says, I won't ask for a sign from the Lord. Which on on surface sounds like a really good thing. But Isaiah responds to that by rebuking him. Which gives us the indication that Ahaz must have had some sort of insincerity when he said it. And so then we're told by Isaiah that the Lord will provide his own sign then. And he says, this is the sign. There'll be a child who's born of a virgin. Now the word virgin just means a young, marriageable woman. And before this baby is old enough to know right from wrong, the lands of the dreaded kings will be destroyed. So these kings who are threatening you are going to be destroyed before this child knows the difference between right and wrong. Now, while there's debate about who the identity of this child back then is, I think that there's a name that's given to us which every parent should memorize and give to their firstborn child. I've already passed it, so I can't do it now, but you can do it if you haven't had a firstborn child yet. Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Uh, and this individual who is born to Isaiah and woman In the very next chapter, in Isaiah chapter 8, this baby's name is quick to the plunder. 
And before we're told, this baby can say, my mother or my father, action is taken against Aram and Israel, Damascus and Samaria, and they're uh, obliterated. And we're then told in chapter 8, verse 8, that this baby's name is also Emmanuel. Now, get this. So, there's a prophecy made by Isaiah to King Ahaz that God's going to deliver you from this coming destruction. There's two enemies at the gates. They're threatening you. Just hold on. Watch the Lord deliver you. Those nations are going to be destroyed before this baby even knows right from wrong. Or in this case, later on, even can say mama or dada. Right? This is going to happen before then. And sure enough, it happens. It's fulfilled there in chapter 8. And meanwhile, there's a much broader sense in which this is fulfilled. This is the way that this hermeneutic works. There's a near fulfillment, a pre-fulfillment, that satisfies the immediate requirements of the prophecy in the immediate future. And it simultaneously functions as a type that sets the stage for a bigger fulfillment, a grander thing that's yet to come. This baby who was born to a young woman who at the time of the prophecy was yet a virgin, but obviously wasn't a virgin by the time she had a baby, right? Get it? She was a, she was a virgin when the prophecy was given, but then she was no longer a virgin, obviously, when she gave birth to the baby. Then that fulfillment happens there, but it then points forward to a much grander fulfillment where a woman who never slept with a man conceived of a baby, conceived a baby by the Holy Spirit and gave birth while still a virgin. That's the bigger story. And that coming baby would provide a much greater deliverance. Not one from a couple of enemy nations, but one to which we all have an enemy, and that is sin and death and Satan. He would take care of these for us. This is the only case you have. I'll give you a couple other quick examples. The flight of Mary and Joseph with Jesus to Egypt, recorded in Matthew 2, is said to be a fulfillment of Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. This is notoriously one of those big passages that people look at. But what I think clearly can be at least stated, stated is this. When God delivered Israel out of Egypt and brought them into the promised land, that was a picture of a grander deliverance. So what happened when God called his son Israel out of Egypt and delivered them, it's a picture of a grander deliverance. And Matthew picks up on this and says, Jesus also went to Egypt to flee from a king that was trying to kill all the babies, remember? But then God brings him, calls him back out of Egypt to ultimately provide a deliverance to God's people. So the picture of the Exodus is a small picture, grand event in history, right? But small in comparison with the greater deliverance that was to come. The slaughter of innocents that Matthew records in Matthew 2, he says is a fulfillment of Jeremiah 31.15, in which there was sorrow over the destruction and deportation of Israel, but he says the fulfillment of that sorrow is seen in the babies that are killed by Herod around the time of Jesus' birth. In Acts 2, Peter is preaching and he quotes from Psalm 16, where David explains how he'll be glad and rejoice even in the thought of his own impending death, because he knows that the Lord will not allow his Holy One to suffer decay. He won't be abandoned to Sheol. But that statement finds its most full expression in the idea of Jesus who is buried, and God would not abandon his son, but rose him from the dead. And the reason why David can have ultimate assurance that he too will be raised is because Jesus is raised. 
Romans 8 explains that the persecution that Christians undergo is in accordance with what was written in Psalm 44, verse 22, where the suffering of God's people in the Old Testament becomes typological for the suffering of God's people in the New Testament. So what happened to them back then is typological of what happens to us now. So there's a fulfillment in the immediate near future in each of those prophecies, but there's a much further, long-reaching fulfillment as well. Hopefully, with that in mind, you understand my perspective on this text. I believe that Jesus has something to say about A.D. 70. I believe he has something to say about the coming destruction of the temple and all of the events surrounding that. I also think, by implication, that he also has something to say to all Christians throughout all the ages who have suffered persecutions, have gone through wars and famines and difficulties. All of that has application to them as well. But I think, ultimately, the final fulfillment of all of this will be seen in the end. When there is a massive and great tribulation, and all of these things will come in their full fury. Last week we were warned to keep a lookout for false teachers. We were warned in the first part of the Olivet Discourse to you know, not jump to unwarranted conclusions. He explains that there's a great many difficult things coming for his followers. We shouldn't be surprised. We, we shouldn't be you know, wrecked with worry when famines and earthquakes come and wars come. Jesus said, all of this is the beginnings of birth pains. More trials are yet to come. In other words, my dear friends, life as a follower of Jesus is not easy. Can I say it again? Life as a follower of Jesus is not easy. All those who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. To you it has been granted not only to believe in his name, but also to suffer for his sake. You've been given suffering as a gift from God. Along with the belief he gave you as a gift, he's given you the gift of suffering for him as well. So Jesus explains that the suffering that his disciples will encounter is not only of the general sort. I mean, believers and unbelievers alike see earthquakes and wars and famines. All of that happens to the whole world. But guess what? Because we're God's children, he's got extra special suffering in mind for us. There's more. What suffering do we encounter as well? Well, we'll encounter the hatred of a world purely because of our stand for Jesus. We'll be despised and treated like dirt, for, for not for something we've done wrong, but simply because of who we are. Or maybe better said, whose we are. Just by the sheer fact of being in Christ, we are going to encounter persecution. Jesus said in John 15, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours too. Jesus says, you're going to encounter the same reaction from people that I encountered. Remember, it happened to me first. If you're following me, it's going to happen to you too. You see, Jesus doesn't sugarcoat the call to commitment. Do you notice that? I mean, there's a serious problem when people try to just like tell, you know, tell people, they sell them a bill of goods. Say, you know, come to Jesus and your life will just become easy. You know, everything you could ever want. You'll, you'll be granted riches and, you know, unending health and all this. All of this stuff is over-realized eschatology kind of junk. All of this is a failure to recognize what Jesus said in this world at this time. It's going to hate you. You're going to find increased difficulty. Sometimes we lose some of the impact of these words because we're insulated from a lot of the more extreme forms of persecution. Not many of us have our lives threatened 
because we announce that we're followers of Jesus. Perhaps what you have and I have encountered is the occasional scoff, or maybe been the punchline of somebody's joke. Maybe we've been scowled at, or maybe we've been given snobbish looks. Maybe we've been excluded from someone's club. But few of us have experienced being dragged into court. Few of us have been threatened with death. Yet that's indeed what was happening in the early days of the church. According to church history, all the apostles except for John, who was exiled to Patmos, were martyred for their faith. But realize that just because you might not be experiencing it right now, it doesn't mean that it's not happening all over the globe. According to some studies done by the Journal of Missionary Research, there have been more martyrdoms in the 20th century than all the previous centuries combined. In the 1900s, more deaths for Christ than all the centuries leading up to the 1900s. And while America today provides freedoms of religious worship, there is no guarantee that those freedoms will continue. We must be ready. We must be prepared. Well, all of this, dear friends, is going according to plan. Even when such events aren't in our plans, understand that God is bringing to pass his glorious plan. He's planned for the trials and tribulations and persecutions that his children face. And he's with them through it all. Here Jesus provides us with an instruction. And I'm going to give you four points. These will go pretty quick. Number one, consider persecution as evangelistic opportunity. If you get nothing else, I want you to get that one. Consider persecution as evangelistic opportunity. Jesus tells his disciples here that you're going to bear witness before governing authorities for the reason of testifying to them. You're going to be furnished with a platform by which you can declare your allegiance to me. You're going to be dragged in front of courts and authorities and you're going to be given places where you can speak. And when you're given that opportunity, you use it for me, Jesus says. I want to give you a perspective, Jesus says. Don't be shocked when this happens. Know it is happening and be ready to speak with boldness. He says, you're not only going to see disasters, natural disasters and stuff like that, but you're going to be persecuted. There's a special hatred that this world has for Jesus' followers. And they're going to be dragged. They're going to drag you before synagogues, Jesus says. So the Jews, they're going to bring you in front of them. They're going to lash you. They're going to spitefully treat you. And not only will the Jews bring you before their courts, but both the Gentiles will as well. He says, you'll bring, be brought before governors and kings for my sake. You see, the early church would suffer both from the political establishment as well as from the religious establishment, the Jewish leaders. This is such a puzzling truth, isn't it? Why is it that those who sincerely love God and as a result love their neighbor are called to be peacemakers and proclaimers of the good news of the gospel, seeking to help others and minister to needs whenever we can, why is it that we are met with hatred and ridicule and persecution? You ever thought about that? Why is it the people who love God and love others and are called to share the good news and we're telling them that they might be saved and not go to hell, which we all deserve, but God has provided an avenue whereby we can be saved and rescued? That's what we're doing. We're telling them about this. Why is it that we're hated so vehemently? It's puzzling. It doesn't seem to make logical sense. We have to remember that our warfare is not with flesh and blood. 
but with principalities. It's a, there's a spiritual dimension to this. And that's why it's, it just goes against all reason. There's a spiritual dimension fueling this conflict. But with the attacks that were coming, it was untold opportunity that would be presented. These would be openings in providence by which the cross and empty tomb could be proclaimed. Read it in the book of Acts. Paul, every time he's in front of another authority, what is he doing? He's sharing his testimony. I mean, how many of these guys are hearing the proclamation of the gospel? And get this, not only the little leader there, sometimes it was a private conversation, but a lot of times it was with an audience. People are all peering in. Because today, just then, just like today, everybody loves bad news and loves to circle around it, right? Oh, somebody's in trouble. Let's all see what's going on. And there they see then the apostles and disciples proclaiming the excellencies of Christ. And not only are they proclaiming it, but they're willing to stand fast and even seal their testimony with their own blood. How many times have you heard people say, you know, people will lie for a lot of things, but when death is on the line, the lie doesn't really cut it anymore. There is a reality to what the disciples experienced and saw because they all sealed their testimony with their own blood. They were willing to die for what they had to say. They knew it was true. Paul's perspective in Philippians 1 is excellent. I want you to know, brethren, he's talking to the Philippian church, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. My imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become so well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. You see what Paul's saying? He's saying, even the Roman guards, the Roman soldiers, know why I'm here. They know it's because of Jesus. And I've seen great fruitfulness. Even in my imprisonment, God has given me a platform from which to proclaim his excellencies. And he's encouraging the church. Here, the, the apostle who's in prison writes the letter of joy. He's there in jail, and he's joyous because he sees this is advancing the gospel. Again and again, we see this happening with Christians. We must not be afraid or think something has gone desperately wrong with God's plan because the very trials that we go through are being used by God for evangelism. Think about that next time. Next time you go through a trial, especially persecution for the name of Christ, recognize that this is a tool God is using to advance his kingdom. Untold numbers of people have been brought to faith in Christ by the witness of Christian martyrs. There's countless stories of men who have been converted to Christ, even some men who are leading these Christians to their death, who then later on, God opened their eyes. And through the testimony of those who are willing to die for Christ, were brought other men to Jesus. Understand, if you stand for Jesus and forthrightly proclaim the gospel, you will encounter persecution. It can take on many forms, but there's many forms of persecution that can come your way. We might not have the most severe forms of physical torture and these sorts of things, but you could see economic hardship. You could see social ostracization. You could have your family abandon you. You could have betrayal from friends. All of these things are still real forms of persecution that you could encounter even here in America. David Platt says, If you give your life to proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom in your workplace or somewhere else across the world, life will get harder for you, not easier. If you want to live a nice, comfortable, safe Christian life, then don't share the gospel. Of course, that's not an option if we love Jesus and want to be faithful to him. If life is really easy and you don't find much persecution coming your way, you have to really sit down and think sincerely and ask the Lord, am I being forthright with the gospel? 
All those who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. Am I sharing Jesus with others? Because if you do, you will find hardship. And if you don't see any hardship, then it causes us to question, are we forthrightly proclaiming the gospel to those around us? Jesus goes on to explain that this persecution could even come from one's own family and friends. He says that lawlessness will multiply and the love of many will grow cold. Lawlessness will multiply and people's love will decrease. And it will be seen in even the most basic relationships. Brother against brother, father against child, child against parents, relatives against relatives, friends against friends. You see, at the very heart of the law, Jesus asked, was asked what's the greatest commandment? What is it? To love the Lord your God with all our heart, my soul, and strength. What's the second that's like it? Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the core principle from which the whole law springs. So certainly people who spurn the law, and those people, love will go cold. Understand that rebellion against the law does not spring from love, nor does it produce love. Lawlessness does not come from a loving heart. And lawlessness does not produce loving hearts. Leon Morris says, by definition, the lawless person is motivated by personal, selfish concerns, not by any regard for others or for the rules that govern our intercourse with one another. So the upsurge of lawlessness, there's going to be a cooling off of love. A lawless society is not a loving society. In fact, animosity towards the law is animosity towards God and hatred towards God because it's his law. And then that shows itself in our hatred towards others. Can I also make a quick note? Legalism also doesn't result in love either. It's only those who are saved by grace through faith in Christ who have seen how far they have fallen short of the law and cry out for grace and experience the forgiveness that only grace can provide and then experience the the freedom that grace provides as well that know what, what true love is. It's saying grace that provides forgiveness is the grace that empowers obedience. These are the ones who love, whose love grows more and more. But when Jesus takes first place, first loyalty, that definitely will have implications on all other relationships. And you'll see when persecution rises, nominal Christians, Christians who are only Christian in name, their true stripes will be seen. Their effort will show itself in trying to distance themselves from true Christians. I wonder today if persecution that's present in a place like China might erupt in the United States. And I wonder how many churches would still exist at the end of that. I mean, people genuinely seeking the Lord because they love Jesus. I wonder how many would just go back to life and forget even the sham, the outward appearance of devotion to Christ. Matthew Henry says, persecuting times are revealing times. Wolves in sheep's clothing will then throw off their disguise and appear as wolves. Secondly, don't fret over delivery. Don't fret over delivery. Jesus says, don't rehearse your defense. It's going to be provided, he says, by the Holy Spirit. He's going to give you eloquence and wisdom such that those who are against you won't be able to resist it or refute it. They won't be able to contradict it. Now, we know the apostles weren't strangers to being given words by the Holy Spirit, especially several of them writing the New Testament. But Jesus tells the disciples to not overthink times of evangelism, especially when their own lives were on the line 
before courts of law. You can imagine that kind of setting. Intimidation is a huge deal, right? You get a big crowd around. You have these people in authority, and they're pressing down this thing. Jesus says, don't worry. Don't stress it. You'll be given words. Now, this is not to say that preparation is never needed. There's no spiritual badge of honor and laziness. 1 Peter 3.15 tells us to always be prepared to make a defense. Anyone who gives us a it asks a reason for the hope that's in us. R.T. France said, The promise that words will be supplied is for hard-pressed disciples on trial and not for lazy preachers. <laughs> Some people might look at this and go, Oh, you know, I'm just, the Holy Spirit is going to give me words to say. You know, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. His point is, trust the Holy Spirit when given an opportunity to speak, especially when you're being called upon to reply to accusations and provide clarifications to hostile authorities in times of persecution. When this comes, trust that the Holy Spirit will work in these moments to provide you with eloquence you didn't otherwise know. Wisdom that just blows you away because it's not your own. It's being provided to you. I wonder how many opportunities, though, do pass, we let pass by simply because we felt that we were unprepared to speak. I'm sure you've had, I know I've had opportunities like this. I was like, man, why didn't I say something? It was a brilliant opportunity to say something. And maybe some nagging doubt in the back of my mind, oh, am I not saying it quite right? Or, man, that other person says it's so much better than me. If I just had them here, they would be able to articulate that right. Instead, we ought to instead humbly trust the Lord, say a silent prayer, and then boldly tell others about Jesus, trusting that God will use our witness for his glory. Oftentimes, the way the Holy Spirit works anyway is by bringing to our remembrance things that we've already learned. He says, don't fret about the delivery. Third, stand firm in the Lord's protection. Jesus promises, it's an interesting statement. Not even a hair of your head will perish. The one enduring to the end will be saved. It's a strange statement because we know that so many of these guys died. They were killed for their faith. How, what does he mean? Not even a hair of your head will perish. Jesus says here, hold on. Stand firm. Be steady. Hang in there. Endure to the end, he says. Now, how can we persevere in the midst of trials and persecutions? Ultimately, the reason why we can persevere is because God preserves. Right? He holds on to us. We can stand firm because Jesus is with us always, even to the end of the world. We can trust him in the trial because we know that the momentary light affliction is producing for us eternal weight of glory far beyond all comprehension. Such an interesting statement from Paul in 2 Corinthians. He says this light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. And it makes you ask the question, What's the light affliction that he's talking about? And you read it in context, we see this. We who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. <laughs> oh, that was one of those light afflictions. You know, being delivered over to death. One of those light afflictions. But see, in Paul's mind, he understood that the glories that were to follow made everything here on earth, the suffering that we experience, so tiny in comparison with the weight of glory to come. We can have boldness when confronted with intense persecution because we're in our Father's hands, in our Savior's hands, and no one can snatch us out of His hands. We're held tight and fast by Him. I love meditating on some of the old stories are just so fantastic in the Old Testament. Like, for example, 
meditating on truths that we see in the persecution that Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah encountered. You remember those three guys? You probably know them by their names from Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know, those three guys who would not bow down to the idol because they would worship only God alone. And I love their statement to the king, Nebuchadnezzar. They said, we don't need to give you an answer concerning the matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. What a wonderful testimony. We remember the story. They are preserved in such, in such a way that even looking in there, and there's a fourth figure that looks like the Son of God inside of the flames. They come out. They don't even smell like smoke. The guys who are putting them into the furnace die trying to even get them into the furnace. And they come out completely not even smelling of smoke. How long does it take anybody around a fire over this last couple of days? I mean, cold outside. How long does it take you to smell like smoke when you've been around a fire? Like about two seconds? Maybe half a second? Um, here they smelled nothing of it at all. Wonderful deliverance by the Lord. But I love their statement. Even if he does not... Even if he doesn't, we won't worship your gods. And I love also that other statement, we'll be delivered out of your hand either way. Either by death and we'll go to be with him, or he'll preserve us. And we'll be, either way, we're delivered out of your hand, O king, because our God has us in his hand. Ryle says it this way, we may lose much by serving Christ, but we shall never lose our souls. The world may deprive a believer of property, friends, country, home, liberty, health, and life but it cannot break the union between Christ and his soul. What a wonderful promise to know that absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Not death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor power, nor depth, nor any other created thing. We need to remember in those moments that we are being held. And that's how we persevere in those moments. I think his, his description there of not even a hair on your head perishing means ultimately that whether, whatever they do with your body physically, I am going to preserve you completely. Trust me, Jesus says. I have your soul. That's what matters. He, he says another place, you know, why, why fear those who can only kill your body? Rather fear him who can not only kill your body, but throw your soul into hell. Fear that one, right? Your body is just a momentary thing, but our soul is eternal. And we'll be granted new bodies, we know, in the life to come. Fourth and finally, understand this. Great persecution leads to gospel proclamation, which leads to the end. Persecution leads to proclamation, which leads to the end. We're told here that the end will be preceded by worldwide gospel proclamation. Jesus has just said that there's a great many difficulties that are going to happen, and yet the end is not yet, he has said. They're just the birth pains. But then he provides us with an indication here of what will necessarily precede the end, and he said it's this, the gospel will be proclaimed to the nations, and then the end will come. So, inevitably, persecution, fueling proclamation, will lead to the end. But when? When is the end? Is that the question that started this whole discussion? Disciples ask, when are these things going to be? Still today, people ask, when is the end coming? When does it happen? And as we talked about last time, many have foolishly tried to put forward their answer to that question. This is the big question. It's a question that started the whole thing. It's the same question we wonder about today. 
When will we know that the nations have been reached? To be more specific, when will we know when the nations have been reached? What constitutes the fulfillment of all the nations will have the gospel proclaimed to them? Who are the nations? Is it, is it a reference to modern-day countries? Is it a reference to every language? Is it a reference to distinctive people groups? I like the way that George Ladd answers. God alone knows the definition of terms here. I cannot precisely define who all the nations are, but I do not need to know. I know only one thing. Christ has not yet returned, therefore the task is not yet done. When it is done, Christ will come. Our responsibility is not to insist on defining the terms. Our responsibility is to complete the task. So long as Christ does not return, our work is undone. Let us get busy and complete the mission. We live in a day of incredible resources. There has been unprecedented progress in the learning of foreign languages and Bible translation. Increased ability um, to, to travel and infiltrate difficult places to get to. Financial wealth, able to provide for a great host of missionaries. Printed material available at relatively inexpensive, inexpensive prices. Technological advances, aiding communication, things like radio, TV, the internet. The question is, are we going to use all of these advantages and put them to good use? Or instead, are we going to sit on them and squander them? America is one of the most wealthy nations that's ever been in existence. Will we make use of those finances to fuel mission? Will we take advantage of the Internet? Will we use the radio? Will we use TV in ways that are honor God? Will we ourselves go? Will we send others who are willing to go? Will we make, take every advantage and use it for God's glory? We know that the gospel must be preached to the nations before the end will come. And we know that that will happen because God is seeing to it. He's decreed that it will happen prior to the end. And he's also willed that his children, whom he saved and called out of darkness into his marvelous light, those who have been saved and made now ambassadors for him, are the ones he's called to share the good news to those who are still in darkness and enslaved to sin. Certainly all times of the year are appropriate for evangelism, right? Or to be ready in season and out of season. When it's convenient and when it's not. When you feel like it and when you don't. We're to always be engaged with the gospel. But may I encourage you that especially with this now being the start of Advent season and as we remember the first coming, the first Advent of Christ, we should be quick to talk to others about what Christmas is all about. Perhaps you can ask the question that the Desiring God Advent book asks today that I suggested that you start reading with your family last week. It's free online. Go and get it and start today. It starts with the very first one today. But he asks the question, what does Jesus want for Christmas? Please ask people, what do you want for Christmas? How about the question, what does Jesus want for Christmas? I'll leave that as a cliffhanger. You'll have to go and read it for yourself. What does Jesus want for Christmas? Let's tell everyone, though, around us the good news about Jesus. Let's not waste opportunities. Let's make the most of them. And let's see even the moments that will come of persecution as tools in the hands of our all-wise, all-good God to further his glorious gospel and his kingdom. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning, the joy of digging into your word together. I pray that you would illumine our minds to truth, that you would expose the falsehoods that we hold to. Lord, I know I myself am one in need of continual learning from you. And I pray that as we continue through the Olivet Discourse, that you would not only help us to come to some conclusions on the text itself, but teach us good hermeneutical principles, good Bible study, Bible interpretation methodology. We so desperately want to know you rightly and to read your word correctly. So we ask you to continue to guide us and direct us in that effort. Lord, with Christmas coming up, as we enter into December, and we remember the birth of Jesus Christ, we remember his birthday, I pray we'd be quick to tell others and to ask others questions about what do they think about Christmas. And may it allow us many, many opportunities to talk about the glorious good news of Jesus Christ and that sinners can be forgiven. May you draw these sinners unto you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to finish with a song together.